Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Derhage. Hi everyone, it's uh, Roxanne Durhaj of Authentic Living with Roxanne. Thanks again for tuning in. Uh, today I have Anna Tasia. Tighter. Tighter. The joke is always, I'm always like, it's like tiger with a D. <laughs> oh, tighter. <laughs> That's probably good for your interviews, I'm sure. <laughs> the second joke is I should have made, married Tiger Woods, so he becomes Tiger Tighter. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's true. That would have been fun. <laughs> So Anna's um, had quite a different path. And as you know, I talk a lot about resilience. So she's uh, been gracious to come on and be able to share her path. So I'll tell you a little bit about her. Uh, she was born in Zagreb, Croatia, and her, mo- her mom was an actress and an artist, uh, Yagoda Kaloper, and her father was an architect, Radovan Tiger. 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 So when bombs started to reach Zagreb in uh, 1991, she fled to Vienna where she graduated with an MBA, collected lots of experience with diplomacy, marketing, and advertising. And her first novel is From Barbie to Vibrator, which we'll talk a little bit. And we've talked a little bit about that when we had a little chat. Um, And that was published in 2008 in, in Croatia in 2009 in Austria. And um, you, then you went on to write Tito Land. And then this book was published in Austria in tw- 2012, um, in Austria, and then Croatia in 13. She got massive uh, media coverage and was nominated for several German awards, Austrian and Croatian newspapers and magazines. And you're finishing up your PhD in psycho- uh, sociology. sociology and media studies. Yes, communication studies and... and- sociology it's very Quite fascinating so i'm not sure how you do that with a little boy and do all of i'm not things. it's on pause now Roxanne. no 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 we're not pretending to be super women no and she never gave up her passion for um <clears throat> ballet dancer which i didn't know earlier and she you presently teach at uh, the new york city um, i no 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 i don't i i <laughs> i wish i did uh what i di- i decided to st- start teaching so I got certified at New York City Ballet. Uh, They have an amazing program or used to have called a New York City Ballet Workout which is a workout based on ballet. So I'm certified to teach that but then life happened after I got my certification. I also met my husband. (laughs) Life happened I did not start teaching ever start teaching maybe I will one day. (laughs) <laughs> well, it sounds like a fascinating program because, of course, with ballerinas, we know how much they things that they have to do and how they have to be aware of their body. So hence was the pivot. And then she's got married um, to your husband's an American bestselling author and screenwriter, Nick Kelman. And you have a son. What's your son's name? My son's name is Kai and he's five and a half. And he's so fun and so amazing. I know every mama says that for their, for their kids. <laughs> and he's in the next room playing with dragons. So we might have a little bit of a visitor, but we will try our best to see how we do. 
Um, there, you're on. She's on quarantine, and she's in Seattle, and everybody's working from home. And obviously, uh, Kai is also home from school. And I know our since we've talked uh, last couple of days, we're, we're getting our, all our schools here um, are starting to um, you know have people home. So we're kind of catching up mm-hmm. compared to Seattle now. So let's jump right in, knowing that we now your let's story do. is quite fascinating, um, kind of. And let's talk a little bit about your path and what led you to write your books. And uh, we'll also talk a little bit about her new podcast, uh, which uh, discusses the stories that um, our moms have taught us. And uh, so you tell me, tell me a little bit about um, you know your upbringing and kind of that uh, beginning of in Zagreb where you were exposed to, to war? Uh, I was born and raised in Zagreb, and back then it was Yugoslavia. Well, Yugoslavia was a country that was uh, created out of six different republics, um, which have in the meantime separated. So Yugoslavia was a very fascinating social experiment in the way that we had to learn to accept everybody as one and become and live as brothers and sisters with people who had different religions, different languages, different writings. We have uh, we we had officially Cyrillic script and Latin script in in Yugoslavia. We had six different languages, uh, I think five different uh, religions, and very different uh, mentalities and cultures. So I thought it was fascinating that we. I grew up in a country like that. It's Mm -hmm. very sad. It later fell apart because of these differences, also because of the, you know, the fall of the communist system. But what's even more fascinating about Yugoslavia, Tito's Yugoslavia, Tito was the president of Yugoslavia who led Yugoslavia through the second world war, uh, fighting Germans. And uh, he was a communist but very, very early on, I think 1948, he already uh, split with the Soviet bloc. Mm-hmm. He did not like the rigidity of that communist system. So Tito managed the impossible, which is to balance between East and West, between capitalism and communism. Uh, Yugoslavia became a neutral country. So we had, it was called nicknamed Tito's communism. We, we lived in communism, which was actually more socialist, socialism, communism, which was open to the West and mm. the borders were open. Um, there was a little bit of a free market. People were allowed to have private businesses. So, so Tito tried to balance between communism and capitalism. I write a lot about that in my book. And this, I started writing Tito land when the, financial crisis broke out in 2007 and everybody said we you know capitalism obviously is failing communism failed what do we do do we have an alternative so that inspired me to write about my childhood in a country which was experimenting with this alternative between communism and capitalism um what really struck me and was the point i think of tito land was that we Everybody was safe. Everybody had a house, hold, I mean, a roof over their head. Everybody had a job. Schools were free. My ballet was free. You know, we had these privileges in a way of living in communism. We were allowed to travel outside, but we weren't rich. Nobody was rich. There was no luxury. So there was enough for everybody. 
and that created a very interesting state of mind for people as a ride in Titoland, what it means creatively and for the well-being of people when they feel safe and taken care of. And what it means to learn for me to grow up in learning that luxury and abundance is not the most important thing. Safety is more being safe enough to create and live your own life and exert your potential, you know, is as I learned more important than any kind of luxury and, you know, being rich and, (laughs) you know. And and then you went from that space uh unfortunately my childhood was a little a little rough because my parents' marriage was not the smoothest especially not in the last few years of them being together they fought a lot and it would get physical sometimes but parallel to that so when my father said when they when they separated and my father left i was uh, diagnosed with scoliosis and it was immediately when they found it, it was very bad. The curvature of my spine was already so bad. They put me in, in braces, back braces. So I spent many, many years wearing this metal, you know, the back braces mm. that hold the whole torso up. And they were so painful. Sometimes I would have open wounds on my back. It was really, and this is, you wear this 24 hours a day. As a child, as a teenager, you're stigmatized. You know, you're walking around with this thing. I was a ballerina. My mom was a ballerina when she was a little girl and her mother as well. It was very difficult for me. I was still allowed to go to ballet classes, but it was very difficult for somebody used to a lot of physical movement and freedom to be stuck in this thing and stigmatized. And then parallel to that, the country started falling apart. You know, the, the communist bloc started falling apart and that directly influenced us. Uh, with Yugoslavia, what happened was that suddenly um, these nationalistic ideas uh, uh, start coming coming up, and uh, people who used to see the, each other as brothers were suddenly discovered their roots and their nationalistic ideas, and this basically exploded in 1990 in a very very bloody what developed into a very, very bloody war in the Balkans. Balkans. Unfortunately, at the same time, my doctor decided that the back brace did not help. My spine was getting worse. Uh, And he decided I need surgery, which is a very, very extremely difficult surgery. They, you, I had to go to a hospital two weeks before and they, like in medieval times, they were literally stretching my oh. spine every day oh, with no. extra weight for two weeks to then operate on me. And what they do on the, on the table is they stretch the spine again and then they, they uh, put a metal rod to keep it straight. But then in order to know that you are able, that they didn't damage any nerves and that you are able to move, consciously move your limbs which they warned me about, they woke me up while I was open on the table oh my so that, to ask me to move my, my legs and my, my arms. And I have to tell you, this is one of the most tra- traumatic, you know, knowing that you are open. Like it, it was 
but they woke me up. I moved my legs and arms. I can still move my legs and arms. <laughs> you clearly can move quite well from the looks of things. Um, and then I went through a very difficult uh, recovery, which they didn't tell me ahead of times, where I was stuck in a cast, whole body cast for six mm. months. And then I still had to wear another back brace, a metal back brace for another six months. But what I'm very proud of is a year after the surgery, once I got rid of the back brace, I think even with a back brace, I was slowly allowed to go back to dancing. Mm. And a year or a year and a half after my surgery, I was back on stage my with, my, with my metal rod in my back. I was very lucky that my ballet teacher who was choreographing our performances was aware and very supportive of my recovery and my limitations with my back. And I spent a, a year before the war broke out between my surgery and the war, um, dancing in a very beautiful piece on stage um, about the ocean. <laughs> it was a very beautiful piece. And these were some of the happiest moments of my life to have battled with all of that and be on stage with my the ladies from my ballet group and, you know, receive that love from the audience. That was a big, that was amazing. So and then the unfortunately, sorry. So the support from your mother through that, like dad was, was dad involved? Was he there? No, my father in the meantime moved to Aust Vienna, Austria, and he was very busy building his career in Vienna, Austria. My mother was there. And she was amazing. My mother was always amazing. My mom and I were like twin sisters. Mm -hmm. I am an only child. Uh, she lost her parents when she was very, very young. Mm -hmm. So I think in me, she created the family that she missed. Mm -hmm. um, and we always had a um, crazy close relationship. We were best friends and sisters. And um, she was incredibly supportive of me always. But now I'm learning, now that I'm looking back at our life and, and her life, I'm writing a book about her and lessons I learned from her. What was interesting is that she did manage, while giving me this endless love and support, she did manage to keep herself herself. You know, she, she never clung to me in a way. She, mm -hmm. she had her friends and herself and her career she somehow managed to never create a sick dependence. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, like an mesh kind of situation. She somehow yeah. was able to uh, allow you, uh, love you unconditionally, it sounds like, but to also not get enmeshed where even though she didn't, you're an only child, she could let still allow, allow you to be or evolve into who you needed to be. Who I need, and she allowed herself to be who she needed to be. Right. Now as a mother, I see how important that is, you know, that, that, in a way, it's easy. It is and isn't easy, but there's a trick of slipping into motherhood where you just disappear and you become the big mother. Right. Uh, it was very, it, for me, what I'm learning now and trying to figure out now is exactly this balance between giving unconditional love and support, but still being your own person, you know, be still not being dependent on this child and, and this relationship and, and being your own, your own person with your own life and your own career and your own, you know. So culturally, you, you talked about something very interesting. You said that um, 
Instagram at that time, you know, there was that, that internal space of safety, the culture, the internal space, um, that was something that was quite different, obviously, to democracy, which is so different. It's so capitalistic, which it is, is very, you know, you, it's I, 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 and the impact on that. So that whole element of safety, um, how did it kind of play out in your life? Because I'm going to assume that that space created something that maybe say someone like myself who grew up, grew up in democracy, it might be a bit remiss for someone like me. How do you think that kind of played out with you? You know, with me, uh, what happened then, I think, is what, it, what is also important because then this war broke out and, and it was a war, you know, and we had the first air raid in, in Zagreb and we had to fl- hide in our basements listening to these fighter jets flying above our heads. We were already confronted with images of war in the other parts of Croatia for a few months. We knew what it meant. We knew what a bloodbath meant, you know, what destroyed buildings meant. And um, it was extremely scary and stressful. Now, at that stage, my father, as I mentioned, was already in Vienna. I was sitting in the basement. I was so scared. I had very serious heart populations and, and I, had, I was uncontrollably shaking from fear. And my mom got worried about my health. And when the air raid stopped, we managed to, to take the last train to Austria. It was a bizarre experience because the whole city was still in, in, in dark. We were in a blackout and we escaped. We just packed the most necessary things and took this last train to, to Vienna and arrived to Vienna thinking this is only going to last a few days. We'll go back. But it lasted for a few years. It got even bloodier and worse. And I basically, at age of 17, absolutely unexpectedly, literally from one day to the other, uh, had to build a new life in a, in a country where I did not speak language. I didn't speak German. And basically, I, I built a life out of a suitcase a year or two years after the very horrible back surgery that I went through. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, this feeling of safety in my, for me personally is I unfortunately, through experiences I had in my life, I can only say what I've learned in my life is that life is full of, can be full of surprises for some people. Some people's life are just like this. It's amazing. (laughs) I talk to my friends, you know, uh, six months after my son was born, my husband got diagnosed with cancer for the second time and had to go into horrible, horrible chemotherapy. Um, And these things happen in my life, you know, and then I talk to my friends and some of my friends are like, this is incredible what you've experienced my life is like this like and they're like I tried changing something and nothing ever happens so I've learned for myself that we have to create that feeling of safety and a safe life for ourselves which for me means not striving towards unnecessary things Mm -hmm. being happy creating a life that's safe in a sense I have my roof over my head I can pay my bills I have the basic things that make me happy and that I need the rest of the energy instead of trying to accomplish, I don't know what, and, and, and earn millions, I'm going to invest into creating what makes me happy because I know that things can happen, you know, bad things can happen, uh, can happen on any time. And, um, it's important to, to, to 
enjoy the moment. <laughs> so some of that mindset, I would say, started obviously based on where you grew up. You had a bit of uncertainty, obviously, with your parents. You had a strong mother um, that gave you some core fundamentals, and but she also allowed you to grow into becoming who you needed to be. Obviously, and somebody that is very creative, um, that writes. Obviously, you danced, and you know, lucky. What a nice privilege! It, it must have felt like a feat when you got out of a year of being incapacitated and, and being able to amazing. get, I mean, it's kind of like a rebirth, I would think, you know, to I was be able still to... in a lot of pain, but, but I overcome that and it was amazing. It was really, yeah. So, and I, I go back to again, you know, that whole concept that you, with your PhD and thinking about that in the Western world or philosophy or mindset that there, there's always that striving, that striving yes. for, yeah. you know, I'm yeah. going to do, I'm going to achieve this, or I'm going to make this million dollar this. So I'm going to, and there's always that look ahead. And then it sounds like some of the things that you've experienced, it's made you in loss. And I'm going to use the word loss. It's made you more present, which is such a case, right? So you'll often talk to people and I talk to people, you know, in my, practice or in, in kind of corporate, um, you know, North America, that when they go through major loss and they're at that hypercritical time, then they become mindful. And it mm -hmm. sounds like that's something that mm -hmm. you learned, fortunate or unfortunately, I'm going to say fortunately, to recognize that, you know, the, the accoutrements of everything outside of us really, you know, what, what are they um, if, you, if you're not able to kind of be internal and enjoy some of the basic things? I'm, I'm trying, here's an example, you know, I'm trying to find what makes me truly happy. What, what is it? And, and it sounds cliche, but we often think, oh, if my book was a bestseller, I would be so happy. It's not, you know, it took me a lot of work to fear, to accept that what makes me happy is sitting down and writing the book. And, and, but to be fair, also having people read it and talk to me, I love the dialogue. Mm -hmm. I love this idea that what I've created and what made me so happy through the creative process has reached somebody and that and mm. especially entering into dialogue with this somebody i've learned to accept that it's not being famous a famous author or having a bestseller it's this process you know i'm trying to pinpoint wh what is it that really fulfills me and makes me happy um same thing with external things of course you think a palace would i'd love to live in a palace you know <laughs> uh, but then I just bought a tiny little apartment back home in Vienna and uh, I'm going to turn that into a palace. You know what I mean? I'm going to make that space into something that's going to make me happy, no matter how big or expensive or cheap or whatever it is. I think this is what I'm trying to learn is. So it's about, it's about the process. It's not about the end point, which is really what it's we see a lot process. of people, you know, you see, and, and I mean, you've been, you've lived in LA and you, I'm sure I've seen, I just saw one of your posts about your mother-in-law and what she, who she was around. And I just shared um, that her mother-in-law was uh, at the personal assistance and I, to um, the Rolling Stones and she was next to Mick Jagger in the picture. So you've yeah. been around and obviously I've, your husband yeah, the same, right? And you've lived there. So you understand that world. And, you know, it's always, I'm always going back to the basics when we think of, when we have the losses of these famous people that are, you know, they have everything. They have all the materialistic pinnacles. And then, then you hear their inner worlds and, you know, in the incongruence, I've, you know. We've, we've lived, we lived in Los Angeles for eight years or nine years. And we were in the middle of the 
the, the industry and we were lucky through my husband's work to be really immersed into the thing and mingle with some of those people. I've never seen so many unhappy people mm-hmm. anywhere else. Not unhappy, like, like actively unhappy or I'm unhappy, but they are, everybody's racing for something, like insanely racing for something that they're not really aware of, you know, why and what and this is so important and this whole industry is just a big battlefield of these people racing for something and even when they reach when they reach it they learn that it's not it you know it's it's mm-hmm. it's not it of course and you know and i and i think that's that's the world that i live in around mental resilience right it's like um you know what's the prize like is the prize over there or is it really really right here right but that's the question i'm posing do i care about being the best-selling author and sitting on oprah show you know and being watched with millions of people or do i care about creating my writing my book and sharing it with people and talking to people about it and you know touching people in some way and and entering a dialogue with them i think for me personally, that kind of illustrates it the best. Well, it's the in- intrinsic versus the extrinsic, right? Because unfortunately, I think we're in that world and we're in that tempo, that digital economy. We're getting caught up with, how, you know, like they say, how many likes and, you know, even people talking yes. about being um, staying at home now. And guess what? You know, people are talking about how am I going to cope? Right. Because they're, t- because they're going to be isolated. And, and then what, what's going to happen to the digital explosion then? Are we, are we really, are we going to be maxing out because we want to connect or is it just because we're bored? You know, because how many people are so accustomed to being at that tempo where they don't have mm-hmm. to time to stop and to think mm-hmm. really would, it should be a reflective mm-hmm. kind of nice time. But I think it will be interesting to see how people just from what I'm seeing being posted that pe- a lot of people are going to have a tough time with it. I know, but maybe it's going to be healthy for us. It's definitely going to be healthy for the planet. It's amazing seeing those maps of China, the pollution maps. Uh, we will definitely do a service uh, to the planet right now with staying at home and cutting our productivity. But I think it will give us a chance to, to turn inwards and, and face ourselves and our lives and be like, okay, if I don't have all this distraction, who am I? What am I? What, what's fun for me? You know, who are these people I live with? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I like them now. I'm not so sure in 10 minutes. <laughs> so let's, in six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the creativity that came from this whole process. You've written, and I want to talk a little bit about the first book because, and, and I know it's, it's now it's, I don't know if it's translated into English it's and Tito land. So yeah. let's talk because I always go back to, you know, and all the things that I talk about in authenticity, whether I'm talking to a front end person that's wanting to get more connected to, you know, CEOs, at the end of the day, it's our responsibility to look internally, because without that internal space, it's kind of hard to impact change, you know, because we're so like, to the point of, we're so disconnected that we're just kind of like robots and we're going after the, another, the next thing and the next thing uh, versus kind of going internally. Well, that almost killed me. I told you about my, my experience with burnout because funnily enough, growing up with my two artist parents, I decided that I will not uh, be penniless <laughs> and uh, decided to study marketing management and then do my MBA to the big shock of my parents because I grew up in this creative environment and everybody always expected from me to you know, enter that field. 
Uh, and I did that. And I, I worked in diplomacy for four years. And then I started building a corporate career, which actually went very, very well. But this was obviously so foreign to me and, and me personally, but also my upbringing and, and just my nature that after 11 years of that, in spite of it being very successful, I burned out. I really had a very, very serious case of burnout, both psychological and physical. Um, and luckily at that stage, I already started writing my book without knowing I'm writing a book. I just started writing stories. Um, and it, it, it was very hard when I started writing the book and realized this is becoming more than just putting some notes on paper, I've learned what it means to be creatively fulfilled or what it means to be fulfilled with work you do. It doesn't have to be creative. It could be maybe, you know, you could be a doctor and go into operation room and be like, this is it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I've learned finally what it means to be fulfilled with your work. And for me, it was clear that I have to resign Otherwise, I knew if I go back, I will, it, it would crash me, both physically and, and psychologically. I took the gap and said, okay, I'm quitting and I want to turn this into my profession. I was lucky enough. My writing was born under a lucky star. <laughs> and I always say my writing found me. I didn't find it literally found me. Um, so it guided me, you know, things just... And this is what all the spiritual things tell you when you when you're on the right path, doors will just open. Doors were just open. Things, miracles were happening. Doors were opening. People were celebrating my work. I discovered what the creative outlet means. And what I unintentionally discovered was that how you can touch other people with your stories, how you can help other people unintentionally. You put your story out there and suddenly writer, uh, readers write emails and come back to you and say how much that helped them in this way or the other, totally unexpectedly. And that, that was, that's one of the most beautiful parts of my work. And you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting, right? Because uh, <clears throat> likewise, when I wrote mine, I really didn't have... A space other than I thought, okay, I've, you know, I've done the corporate bit now. And, uh, you know, it was, it was pretty tough at the end. And, you know, as, as most corporate environments are, and then I decided, well, what do I do now? And I had written in grad school, I'd done a lot of business writing, I'd really never the thought of writing a book, unlike you, though, and I didn't grow up in a creative, I grew up in a business family. So yeah. I was the opposite. And, and then out of nowhere, this whole thing about well, what do I do? Well, I talk to people about how they relate. And I'm a relationship person. And I could see whether it was somebody that had just been, um, been a victim to a crime or a CEO at a, a senior executive level that really were in that arena of relationships. And well, guess where I've lived my world. And that's where it came about. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just kind of write about that not thinking of anything. And then to your point, when you get the feedback about people saying, you know, I read this and then, you know, what it inspired me to do is go out and, you know, um, you know, I always wanted a career in um, fitness, but I was always afraid because I was a bigger woman and I never thought I could. And, you know, there were so many things that held me back. And then I went out and I started it. And then I, I can't believe because, you know, I read a bit of your story that, that inspired me to go out and do this. I just thought you should know, you know, really? 
Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, wow. Right. You don't know to your point when you're doing that. But I think that inner creativity is coming from a deep space inspires people because so many people can relate to what you're writing about. Yes. Yes. Right. Yep. So tell us about the podcast, because I think this Quickly is about the, the podcast, yes, and then I, I have to go to see I what know. the five-year-old is doing. <laughs> He's probably created a dragon by now. He's playing with dragons in the next room. So let's talk really quickly about the podcast, and then, yes. um, and then we'll wrap up, and we'll talk a little bit about where people can catch, uh, you know, get a hold of it, and anywhere else that they could buy the books. So um, I already talked about my mom, who was my best friend and my sister and my partner in life, <laughs> uh, my big, biggest coach in life and, and fan, my, my best friend and I concluded how hard it is now that I've lost my mom, how hard it is to become your own coach and your own cheerleader at the same time, which my mom was. Um, I lost my mom very, very surprisingly to cancer three, three years ago. And, uh, Two years ago, not, I'm sorry, I'm com- <laughs> confused about times. But last spring, I sat down and decided to s- make notes out of lessons she taught me. I suddenly got this panic feeling that I'm going to forget everything she told me and everything she taught me. So I sat down and started writing these just as notes, you know, things my mama told me. And then that developed into lessons I've learned from her. So I started writing a book which was meant to be lessons she taught me, but I think it's becoming her biography through the lessons she she taught me. She was an amazing woman. She had two very successful careers. She was a celebrated award-winning movie actress, a beautiful, beautiful woman celebrated for her beauty as well. In the same time, she was, she finished Academy of uh, um, fine arts and she was uh, just as equally celebrated and awarded visual artist and graphic designer she had two parallel careers while doing that still in the 70s she would fly to Africa bring bring food and medication to hungry children personally you know she was created a foundation and was she was always a very loud feminist she was always a very strong activist she was an amazing woman <laughs> uh what really inspired me was that it, i went the age of 63 she created or made her own first art movie which she directed wrote and made by herself which suddenly started winning awards and she got invited to movie festival film festivals and now it's uh it's it, it's part of the um, Museum for Contemporary Art in Zagreb. So even at the end of her life, at the age of 60, she again reinvented herself and started something new, which became... So I thought her life... I, I would love to give her life and her lessons to other women, young, young and not so young, as inspiration, you know? So I started writing this book and then talking to my friends about the book, it was interesting how they always started thinking and talking about what they've learned from their mothers. And then I realized how we never really articulate this. We never think and articulate, Mm -hmm. what did my mother teach me or what did she not teach me? Which is very interesting for me. I always ask my guests, what were valuable lessons in your life that you had to learn yourself because your mother was not able to teach you for this reason or either. So the whole idea of the podcast just happened very suddenly and spontaneously, like all the best things. 
And I decided to interview women from all over the world, which is very important to me as I'm so, so international and don't have a real, <laughs> uh, <laughs> a real, I don't know what to call it, root or not root, but you know, I'm <laughs> um, I interview women from everywhere in, in the world, uh, from different backgrounds, ages, professions, very different situations about their mothers. So we talk about their mother's lives and lessons their mothers taught them or were not able to teach them. I love the idea in the beginning when I just came out with it. Now I've recorded 14 interviews and I have to tell you with every new interview, I've even more excited and in love with it. It's, it's a beautiful topic and, and, and the women are so happy and grateful. They can share their mothers in that way and give something of their mothers to the world, you know? So it's a very exciting project. It's called Thank You, Mama, <laughs> and I'm just about to launch it. It can be found on my website at tighter.com, or I'm still waiting for Apple Podcasts to launch it, but it's basically in the process of being able to found everywhere where people listen to podcasts. Well, you know, I, I just, uh, it, it's, it's such an amazing thing because you think of all the stories and you never really kind of put it together that way. It's like, kind of like sitting around with your girlfriends, having some hors d'oeuvres and a glass of wine and the things that you talk about. And really it sounds more like that kind of gathering where we talk about a lot of things. It sounds like yeah. that's what the podcast yeah. will bring. Yeah. So, so Anna, thanks so much. I know we have to wrap up. So for everyone, I guess my message, my, what I'm hearing here is that we all have that creative space right? And it, it, you know, just, it doesn't take, and like Tana's point, life is full and it will keep bringing things our way that you can, in slowing and maybe taking this opportunity that so many people are being quarantined now, not to look at it as a penance of some sort and how I'm going to get, get through this, but to, to really welcome the opportunity to take the time, to really spend time quietly, not, not be binging on certain things just to distract yourself, but take it to the opportunity to write a little bit or to maybe um, do activities that you always think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this when I have the time. Take the time, spend the time, find that space and see what comes. And you never know what's going to come because we often don't slow down long enough to be able to uh, get to that space. But you know, Roxanne, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but That's what, okay. I'm, I'm, what, what I like, because people who are creative are blessed by having this creative outlet and having a certain talent. There are people who don't, you know, and, and like putting stress on people by saying uh, the, the blessing is in creativity. Um, I think what people, what the point is to find what makes you you know because the point is to become a happy person so you just give happiness to the world if it is sitting in your garden and watching birds go do it you know <laughs> yes this is you know or if again if you're a veterinary and you like working with animals and this is what makes you a happy person go do it if it's just going out and taking a walk you know looking at clouds this is one of my favorite things in the world to do i i think because I do have plenty of friends who are like you're lucky that you found writing because I don't have I wish I could find something that fulfills me creative it doesn't have find something that fulfills you that just fulfills you and makes you a happy person go do that you know swim what, whatever it is yeah just just it doesn't have <laughs> to be happiness 
Right. Figure it out. Like what's, what's, <laughs> yeah. what's that? What's going to make me happy? Some people love to bake. I would, I can't bake, but yeah. I, I appreciate that some people are so creative in so many different ways. Um, so, so your point, just find that space, find that activity, whatever it is, find it and do it and, because it makes you it. happy. And when you're happy, and you make everybody... Make- you make everybody else happy, right? <laughs> and you're going to find that out because you're going to be stuck with them for quite a long bit there without the structure. So, Anna, yeah. thanks again. Uh, her website will be in the show notes. Um, and also the ability to uh, link to the podcast will be there also. And, um, you know, the words of wisdom I'm getting is um, you never know when something difficult happens. Um, it affords us a space to be able to reflect and go internally. So now, again, because of where we are in uh, 2020 with what we're experiencing, that space is coming to us, maybe not in a way that we want it to be given, but it is a space. Utilize that space, figure it out, whatever is going to make you happy, do a little bit more of it and enjoy that time. So again, Anna, thanks so much. Um, and hopefully, hopefully he, <laughs> he's not been up to I too many. <laughs> It's a gentle Hopefully break. Please. My husband was allowed to make his phone call. He's working in the other room on his earphones. So again, <laughs> thanks everybody. If you're needing any more um, uh, information on resilience, you can reach me at roxanderhodge.com and I'm a keynote speaker, a coach, and a consultant. Take care. We'll talk to Thank you soon. You. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit roxanderhajcom slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.